Um, so the history of the Jewish people, and you know we have two classes scheduled, part one and part two, and I think that e- even someone with a basic rudimentary framework of you know, the volume of Jewish history knows that we can't really cover everything in three hours. Uh, but we have the option to either try to do that or to just take it at our own pace and we'll see how far we get. So I opt for the second because I think that besides for just the information, there's the flavor, and there's the insights, there's the perspective, and kind of the patterns that repeated themselves over and over again. And uh, that's, I think, more important for us than all the actual information and the dates, and I don't want to bore you guys with dates and information and times and migratory patterns and everything like that, uh, but we'll try to get some sort of a picture, a sketch, if you will, of what Jewish history has looked like for the past uh, 38, uh, some odd hundred years or whatever. You know, it depends, obviously, uh, when you start counting. But a few quick notes before we get started. You know, people think, I, I think that there's a significant gap between what the importance people uh, people assess towards history and perhaps the real importance. You know, we were told, Maimonides writes, he says that there's, in the mitzvah of loving God, very fundamental, crucial, important, pivotal, essential mitzvah, to love God, right? It's, it's, it's the relationship we have with God is one of love and fear, avinu makin, our father, our king. Uh, the, the, both those elements have to be in place. But how do you love God? Right? The idea of God, is it, for us it's an idea, but it's also a distant idea. It's a, it's a distant concept. That concept's hard to wrap our head around. The idea of not being bound in time and space, the idea of the infinite, omnipotent, those things are hard for us to understand. How are we going to love God? So Maimonides writes, um, in multiple places, that the way to do it is to connect to God via his Torah, via his mitzvahs, and via his interaction in history. Because if you actually look at, at Jewish history, you'll notice clearly that God is manipulating history. Not only that, God predicts it in the Torah, and then it plays out, and we looking back, we see it very clearly. You know, the Torah is full of predictions. It writes things with uncanny accuracy that we know now to be true. You know, if you look back today, and you look at the things, the phenomena that the Torah foretells about, and you see kind of how unlikely it is for it to have happened, yet it was predicted and it actually did happen, it's remarkable. Like it's, you, it's, it's a way to connect to a God who is kind of navigating the Jewish people through history. You know, one quick example, just off the top of my head, where uh, we're told in the Torah that we're going to be exiled. We're going to be in Israel, we're going to be exiled, we're going to come back to Israel. Now, to us we know that's true. We know that we were in Israel uh, 2,400 years ago, and then we had the Bab- what's called the Babylonian exile. We were all dispersed. We went to Babylon. We came back to Israel with about 100 years later, 70 years later. Uh, we rebuilt the temple, like the, the term Ezra. Um, um, then we have the, uh, the Romans, uh, the year 70. That's a, a time period that we're very familiar with. Uh, the destruction of the second temple, the uh, taking Jerusalem and making it a uh, Yudenrat city, the first Yudenrat city. The Jewish people dispersed all over the world, North Africa, Europe, primarily to uh, the Near East. And voila, we come back to Israel uh, and reestablish uh, a tremendous Jewish presence in this century. And uh, so what's remarkable about this, we've had a nation here, the Jewish people, that has been exiled not once, but twice and came back to Israel twice. Now, how many nations in history have been exiled more than once? The answer is 
Yeah. One, the Jewish people. Well, yeah. That's it. Aside. Aside from the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. No. Do you know why? Because by definition, when a nation gets exiled, they lose their identity. Right? Once they're not in their land, they don't have their culture, they don't have their language, they don't have uh, their practice, they don't have uh, kind of what kept them together as a nation. They get assimilated and they become no different than the conquering nation or the nation that they are dispersed to. Uh, but we, remarkably, even though we remain few in number, as the Torah foretells, we remain few in number, we are uh, despised most, uh, uh, almost all the time by our, uh, by our neighbors. Uh, yet, uh, against all odds, we remain. We were exiled once, we came back, we exiled again, and now we came back again. So that's just an idea of, of history. Of, of, you see involvement. You see like these are themes or these are realities that have absolutely no precedent anywhere else in history. And it's foretold in the Torah. And God says this is what is going to happen. And it happened. So, you know, when you gain a more perspective in history, you see kind of a new kind of relationship that we could develop with, uh, with, with the Almighty via his interaction with our history. That's just, uh, uh, you know, um, one reason why I think it's important. Additionally, I think that um, we know that in history, especially Jewish history, there are patterns that repeat themselves. And... You, you see this all the way going back to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to today. You know, and the Roman uh, period of the first century, uh, we know a lot about that period. And today, it's almost identical. You know, you see the, the, the uh, uh, if you look at the 19th century and the first century of the Common Era, it's almost identical. The exact forces that were going on, the infighting that was happening with the Jewish people, the fragmentation of the Jewish people, identical. And we fail to learn the lessons of history, and eventually we get... The result happens thus again. You know, if you fail to learn the lessons of history, you're bound to repeat them. That was a famous line by some philosopher, right? Thank you. Uh, so that's why it's important for us to understand a little bit that whatever uh, issues, political, social, geopolitical, national issues we have today are not new issues. They've happened in, in history, and it's important for us to take those lessons uh, from, uh, from past experiences. Uh, perhaps another reason why it's important to learn history is that history is the uh, testing ground for ideas. You know, a hundred years ago we could have had the argument, uh, as the argument was a, a very popular argument, but a very legitimate argument as to what is a better economic structure for a country: capitalism or communism? Like a hundred years ago, that was a valid debate. Today, it is no longer a valid debate. Why? Because we see that capitalism continues uh, flourishing uh, while. Uh, Communism faltered, and China is the communist. But the reason why they're successful is because they adopted capitalism in the '80s. You know, that's why. Um, and uh, you see, you know, you don't exactly uh, you don't have the guards at the in the Soviet Union. They weren't they weren't at the border keeping all the other people out from joining the people's paradise. It was actually keeping the people inside. So it wasn't exactly a paradise. You know. It's clear, right? History has demonstrated that this is, for whatever reason, while well, we can argue the, the, the debate, the reasons as to why, but history has demonstrated that it's better off for people to live uh, under uh, a capitalistic economic structure than a communist. Right? That's a simple example that we can learn as well. Condoleezza Rice said that she didn't see anybody trying to immigrate to uh, China or Russia. Right? Was that that she's, exactly. It's, it's true. You know, why are people wanting to come in here? Because we figured it out. You know, for better or for worse, I'm saying you to tweak it. But either way, the 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 macroeconomic uh, 
reality that we have in America uh, has been demonstrated to be the best way to go so far, that, that we're capable of, you know. Okay, now, um, one more thing. When we talk about, about dates, so um, I have over here, I wanted to print this out this way, I have it over here, I have the um, timeline. Uh, to give more of a, of, of a big picture, just when these events happened, you know, Abraham lived 3,800 years ago, roughly. Um, the exact number would be, um, I can do the math right now in my head real quickly, but uh, the, the exact number, the exact date in the Jewish calendar is the year um, 1948. It's a nice easy number to remember because in, in, Jewish, uh, in the Jewish calendar, it's the year 1948, which is the same year as in the Gregorian calendar, the founding of the state of Israel. It's an easy number to remember. Um, but <coughs> we have traditions of dates um, for all these major events. And the secular world has their dates as well, and sometimes there's discrepancies. And in fact, with regards to the first temple, the end of the first temple period, we're off by about 150, 180 years. Uh, I, I feel like we could, we, we, we could feel safe and comfortable by going with the Jewish uh, dates, uh, number one, because obviously it's the Jewish dates, but number two, uh, because I think it's probably more, more likely to be accurate. You know, we have always had a system, a system of how we measure time. You know, it, the Talmud talks about the exact length of a lunar moon. I might have mentioned this. The exact length of a, lo- a lunar month. Right? This is something that we knew a thousand years, uh, 2,000 years ago. Right? It's 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes, and 3 seconds. Down to, like, down to milliseconds, we have it down to the Torah. Um, we had a system of, 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 of how to deal with all the... I mean, we knew exactly. The Torah talks about Like The Talmud says that, uh, you know, that the exact length of a, of a solar year, etc., etc., etc. Now, our calendar that we have today is perfectly accurate, and it's, uh, we were... Um, uh, our calendar today is as accurate as it ever was. So we've had a system of measuring time and keeping track of it, and we have had a standardized record-keeping of dates from the Bible, from the books of, uh, the, books of the prophets. Uh, but in the uh, second century, we have a tremendous book called Seder Olam Rabbah, which organized it all, and it was a book basically of history uh, with dates. As opposed to in the secular world, uh, every, every empire in ancient, uh, in the ancient world kept kept their own method of, of keeping time and their own calendar system, and there was no universality or universal standard adopted till like, the 19th century, uh, maybe even the 20th century, the Gregorian calendar, you know. So that's why um, we can feel very comfortable. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the secular scholars, they work backwards. You know, they work backwards, try to piece together um, the dates. Um, but uh, we have a kind of more of a contemporary um, uh, in, insight uh, onto the dates. Okay. Um, now, very important. Jewish history, or Jewish, the, Jewish, the, the Jewish perspective on the world, forget about Jewish history for a second, starts from when Adam shows up, which is about the, um, about, about the um, beginning of civilization. 
What happened before Adam, whether or not there were hundreds of millions of years or 13.8 billion years before that, it's irrelevant to us. It's not, it's not what we're talking about. We're talking, uh, it starts from Adam, what happened before that, what we call the six days of creation. And these are not simple days because remember we only have uh, constellations, we only have the sun on day four. We don't know what happened from day one to day two. Uh, there's uh, theories we could theorize. Uh, there are many theories, and there are those that say, oh, no, it was only six days, and those that say, no, it's really 13 billion years, 8 billion years, whatever. Either way, what we, do, we, we know for sure is that we're not starting from there. Our, our, our calendar starts from Adam. What happened before that uh, is not relevant to us. And, but specifically, our, the Jewish calendar starts from Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I want to give more of a, of, of a kind of a, uh, what the, the, the Talmud has a, a very uh, um, short statement where it gives us a perspective of all of Jewish history, or really all of, hum- all of the world's history, what we would call. And it says as follows. Shis alfin shana hava alma. Who knows what language that is? Aramaic. That's right, Aramaic. Shis alfin shana hava alma. Six thousand years will be the world. Okay? Two thousand Tohu, two thousand Torah, two thousand Mashiach. What this tells us, first of all, just before we even get started, that's from the Talmud in Sanhedrin, I think it's 98 or 97, I think 98A. What it tells us, first of all, before we even get started as to what these breakdown of the two thousand years are, it tells us, number one, that the world has a beginning, which is what the first word of the Torah, and it's, this has been the Jewish rallying cry for years, and finally the rest of the world has come in the past 50 years to agree to that principle that the world had a beginning. You know, for 2,500 years, the, the rest of the world was screaming, no, 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 the world's been around forever. And finally, it takes 2,500 years, but eventually they come around, and now the entire world agrees that the world had a beginning. There was a starting point, and there was, uh, before that it didn't exist, and now it, it, it came into existence. We say not only does the world have a beginning, it has a conclusion. It has an end. It's finite from beginning and to the end. 6,000 years. Uh, what are these 6,000 years? This is from, from Adam. 2,000 years tohu. Tohu means chaos. 2,000 years Torah. And 2,000 years Mashiach. That's the 6,000 years. Now, what does that mean? We say that this world has a purpose. There's a reason why we're here for. There's something that wasn't at the beginning that will be at the end. And what, what is that? That is the idea of God being present in the world. God created a world where God is inconspicuous. You look around, you don't see God. Right? We, you know, we don't interact, we don't hear God. Right? That's, that's not, we don't have any points of contact, of, of interaction, of interface with God. God is invisible in the world. The goal of the world is for us, for humans, to bring God to the world and God to be visible and knowledgeable and people talk about God. Uh, it's, it's a concept that most people know. Now, remember, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, the idea of God wasn't part of the vernacular. Now you go anywhere in the world, basically, you talk to people, everyone understands the idea of God. We see already a dramatic uh, uh, progression from God being non-existent or not even People don't even know about it. Like, uh, Moses comes to, to, to Pharaoh and says, God, is it, who's that? Who, he has no idea who he's talking about. Now everyone knows about that. So it starts off the world of Tohu, chaos. 2,000 years 
of paganism. 2,000 years of, perhaps we can say atheism, even though that's not really the correct uh, term. Uh, 2,000 years of God being totally invisible. Chaos. What happens at the end of the 2,000 years? We meet a fellow by the name of Abraham. And Abraham is unique, is important in Jewish history, but really in, in world history, because he is the one who's going to take the world of chaos and begin and, uh, and end that period and usher in the era of Torah. Abraham was the one who, via the deduction of his intellectual capabilities, he deduced and he was able to prove that God existed. And that was a very unique and innovative concept. In fact, it was, he was greeted by a very hostile audience. People weren't ready to hear that. And he faced persecution, but he fired on. And he developed lectures, and he went around town telling everyone around, and he developed a following. The idea of God was no longer non-existent in the world. There was this voice, Abraham and his followers, eventually Abraham and his descendants, that would accept this idea. Now where do we have this documented? Was as Abraham? Is it all oral? No, we have it in the Torah. The Torah talks about Abraham and yeah, Genesis. But, but the Torah was written That's much right. later. We're talking about 5,800 years ago or whatever. How do we have that document? No, no, you're right. You're right. So it's it's not it's not it's not uh, it's not it's not contemporary. Um, it's all it's written by Moses, right? The Torah is contemporary to Moses, uh, and if if it was just Abraham, if someone came over to me and says, "Hey, there was this guy named Abraham, and he was a wonderful guy, and he was a prophet," and this and that, well, I would say, "Listen, you got to prove it." Just like if Joseph Smith comes to me and says, "Oh, I found golden tablets," and right, I found golden tablets, and it was written in Reformed Egyptian, and it's yeah. now here's the Book of Mormon. You would say, right, the the reasonable uh, response. Uh, of a skeptic is when someone says something fa- fantastic, like they spoke to God or they spoke to an angel, isn't that you would say, "Well, prove it." How do we know you're not lying? Boy, if Abraham came, to, yes. Well, we get to that point. I just want to, want to no, answer your question. What I'm saying is, if we have this history that Abraham preached and he lectured and he went around and where do we have that? So I said, I said let, me, let me finish, let me finish. If Abraham came to us, let's say Abraham existed today. He came to us, he said, oh, I spoke to God, this and that, wonderful stuff, we would say, prove it. Just like if Muhammad came to us and walked in the door and says, oh, guys, by the way, I'm a prophet. What would we say? Well, how do we know that you're not lying? And that's true for every other prophet besides for Moses. Moses, there was a national revelation. The entire people, three million people, right? I don't know three million people. Six hundred thousand five hundred men between the age of twenty and sixty. We could safely assume there was a, uh, a a same amount of women and some youngsters and some adults. So we have at least a million and a half, perhaps two, even three million people. It depends on how you uh, uh, calculate. Uh, so they all see Moses. They have national prophecy, right? When the, uh, the Jewish people received the Torah, they experienced Mount, Mount Sinai, the national revelation of Mount Sinai was the entire nation. It wasn't just Moses. It was the entire nation. Read the book. Read Exodus, where it talks about it, chapter 20. Read, uh, read uh, Deuteronomy, where it repeats the story. Everyone was there. Everyone saw. Everyone had prophecy. Everyone heard Moses being verified as a prophet. Moses, come up to the mountain. Right, come up to the mountain. They knew that Moses was a prophet. They were there. They experienced it. They they saw that Moses was up on the mountain. Didn't come back down for four days and forty nights. Didn't have any food and provisions with him. They knew he was a prophet. Hence, the reason why we believe that Abraham is a prophet is not because of some uh, tradition or something. It's because Moses told us about it. Moses was called a verified prophet. 
And if you look at Maimonides, in the 13 Principles of Faith, Maimonides talks about Moses being Av Hanavim, the father of the prophets. What does it mean Moses is the father of the prophets? All his kids, his kids, his oldest son is Abraham, and his next son is Ezekiel. No, the point is, is that because of Moses, we believe in prophets. We believe in Abraham, we believe in Isaac, even though those happened, those happened hundreds of years earlier. Now that being said, how many generations are there from Moses to, to Abraham? Not that many. Moses was a Moses was a great great Moses Moses was a great great grandson of Jacob. So hence, it's just two more generations to Abraham, part of the family, and it was a family that developed a tradition that was unbroken. Right? Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Levi, Levi to um, I forgot which one of his kids, uh, one of his kids to Hus, uh, I think it was to Hus, to Yitzhar to Amram, to Moshe. So it's not so far. It's not like we're talking about thousands of years, um, especially with regards to when you, when you factor in the uh, amount of generations. But you're right. If it was, if it, it's, 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 not his, it's not historical. It's not historical. It's not contemporary. Uh, but we know it's true because it says in the Torah. Right? And the Torah we got from Moses and the people that experienced these uh, elements at Sinai, the, these miracles at Sinai, they were the ones who received the same book from Moses. It means It wasn't like Moses came years after this happened to, to different nation. The same people that lived through the miracles in the, in, the, in the desert, they sustained from manna falling from, from the sky, got water from a rock. They were the same ones who got the book that told these narratives and gave the instructions of the Torah. You had a question, David. So the truth I went on, you said that Abraham, at the time of Abraham, there was already about 2,000 years of Human history before that. Well, from 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 Adam to Abraham, right. yes. So what? Um, why did it take so long? Uh, why why did God not reveal Himself or have someone deduce Him earlier? Why? Did okay, so this is this is a very important question. Of, why did of God allow? History and, and okay, so we're told uh, the term we're all familiar with of uh, we're being a chosen nation. Is that right? I haven't heard the term. Yeah. Jewish people are chosen nation. When in fact it's an, inc- an incorrect term. We're not the chosen nation. Abraham didn't. Uh, God didn't choose Abraham. The opposite was true. Abraham chose God. It means what God wanted was someone to choose him, someone to develop this philosophy and to make that decision to be the one who's going to be the, uh, to, the, the you know the guard bearer, so to speak, of this philosophy who is going to accept upon themselves the yoke of responsibility for all of mankind, going to be God's ambassadors to the world, and going to be the family that eventually will be the nation that will do that, uh, fulfill that mission. I've never heard the phrase Abraham shows God as compared to other people. The other people at the time of Abraham, not Moses, but the people at the time of Abraham have an opportunity to choose God? Well, everyone ha- everyone's had the same opportunity. It's just I Abraham was, it theoretically could have been anyone. could have been anyone. Could have been anyone. It wasn't. It wasn't like this is an important thing. And like I it, also from someone recently that with the generation, the different people of Noah, um, Noah. Um, yeah. That one of them is the one that kind of guided Abraham. Yeah. So it was important. What's important to know is that we don't talk Adam about clearly knew about God, mm-hmm. right? That we know for sure. However, he didn't learn it on his own. Right? He didn't learn it on his own. It's not like he, he, he grew up ignorant and developed it on his own. He passed that on to his kids. Right? Somehow that tradition got lost. 
somehow that tradition got lost. And Maimonides, if you look at the introduction, or at the first chapter of the laws of idolatry, he goes through the history of how exactly it got lost. So yes, there was this idea of God's existence known at some point to other people aside from Abraham. However, by the time Abraham got around, it was totally gone, totally non-existent, and he, on his own, came to the idea, and therefore he chose to have this philosophy and have this life mission for him and the first kids. Look at the, God made a pact with Abraham. Right? Your, your children are going to be my children. They're going to have the land of Israel, and they're going to be the Jewish people. God chose us, but really, but Abraham chose God, and Abraham chose this, this responsibility for him and for his children. And Abraham took the world of chaos, and the idea of God was uh, introduced. Now the idea of God was going to be around for, 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 for forever, basically. Abraham, is, was, his name was changed from Avram to Avraham. Why? The Torah says, because Abraham is to be a father of many nations. Av Hamon father of many nations. And we look at the great other monotheistic religions, and, a, and um, um, they come from Ishmael. Abraham had two kids, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, amongst others, but the two kids that we know about, the, their names. Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is the inheritor, the heir of Abraham. But Ishmael is also an Abrahamic descendant, and his children, his descendants, will form Islam. They're the Arabs, they'll form Islam. And they will also do a very, very uh, uh, um, impressive job in assisting the Jewish people in teaching the world about God. Similarly, Abraham had a kid, Isaac. Isaac had two kids, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the father of Rome. Right? That's Edom. They became Rome, and they eventually became the Byzantines, which is the Christians. So Abraham, while the pure, so, so to speak, Abrahamic um, uh, progeny would be the Jewish people, Isaac, Jacob, but also uh, all the other nations that, that, that taught the world about God also came from Abraham as well. So we have this transition. We have this chaos. We have now Torah. And we actually have... Um, uh, according to the Midrash, Abraham started learning Torah at the age of 52, which would be exactly the year 2000. Exactly the year 2000 would be when Abraham started, started studying Torah. Uh, huh? Explain what exactly he was studying. That's a very good question. How did Abraham study Torah when the Torah was not... Okay, so, okay, so uh, okay, this is a good question. How did... Now remember, Abraham was a prophet. And the idea, the hallmark of prophecy is that a prophet can know what happens in the future before it happens, right? Jeremiah is talking about Al-Naharot Bavel. We sat on the banks of the river and we were crying. We were, we were just exiled. And the Babylonians come to us and tell us, sing the song of Hashem, song of God. And we start crying, how can we sing the song of God in a foreign land? Right? He wrote this hundreds of years before it happened, right? And contemporary historians, which are not willing to accept the idea of prophecy, well, they'll find it really hard to understand how Jeremiah wrote that. So that's why there's a several hundred year gap in, in our dating of Jeremiah because they're just not willing to accept that he's a prophet. But by definition, a prophet is able to know what happens before it happens. The Torah is written by Moses as per the dictation of God. And it talks about many things that happens. It, 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 it describes with uncanny accuracy 
events that happen in the future. And we see now, we look back and we see that actually happened. Right? It describes that. How does it do it? Because it's, it's, the, it, it, it's, it's, the, it's, it's information given by God via the conduit of the prophet. So the simple answer is that Abraham had Torah because he was a prophet. Now, yeah. if we're saying that these uh, prophets could prophesy the future, and God already knew what was going on in the future, how do we have individuality and self-determination? So that's, that's, that's one of the classical philosophical uh, quandaries mm-hmm. where you have, you have the, it's a very, very famous question. You seem very proud of yourself. <laughs> no, no, not proud, believe me. Yeah, so that, that, I'm saying that's a, a famous, I'm sure everyone here has heard the question of determinism versus uh, free will. Like, uh, the second you have a God who is present at all times, hence God exists today as much as he exists tomorrow, or 100 years from now, or 100 years ago, how do we have, um, how do we have, try to get back to the original point, how do we have free will? So that's a very good question. Maimonides talks about that in the fifth chapter of the laws of truth, I believe. Uh, and there's many answers given to this question, um, but I think that there's, what I always do with this question is I ask a better question. You think that's a good question? I have a way better question for you. It's not just a problem isolated to free will. It's a problem that is much more expansive than that because if God exists, then there's this reality of this overwhelming, ever-present, omnipotent, right, entity, yet there's us, and we're clearly not God. So there's something that God is not. There's something which is distinct from God. Well, how does that work? How do we exist? There's a much more fundamental problem. It's, it's, it's two realities that we know are both true, yet we don't see how they could possibly uh, be compatible. How do we reconcile the idea of a finiteness and infinite, and, and infinite kind of coexisting? Huh? By retraction. Well, okay, by retraction. So, you're, so this is a... Well, this is, yes, so this is, so this is the, the, a Kabbalistic concept called symptom. That's the word given for it, which is, I guess the word used was retraction that God, sort of speak, limited himself. And God enabled something to exist. It means the way God created was not by actively creating, but rather by limiting himself, and that void, so to speak, was a, a playing grounds for something else to exist. You know, We could choose. Everyone agrees we could choose. Why? Because we all agree that criminals should be punished. Right? You agree that, I agree that. Everyone agrees. Well, why should criminals be punished? Obviously they can choose. But God knows what they choose, but still, so God limits himself, and God means that there's a point uh, within each one of us, humans, humans, humans only, where God is not present, and, the, and, 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 and therefore there's some sort of individuality where we could have a say in the matter. Okay. How does God limit himself? How does that work? We have no idea. I mean, you know, I had all the, you know, we all have these ideas about God and what people are I've always had this idea, and I'm sure millions of others have. You know, like he put put us down on the earth and uh, let us just do our own do mm-hmm. our own thing until we got into trouble, and then he would sign his own thing. So that's it's like we're playing toy soldiers. <laughs> yeah, but it's yes, um, but it's important. But it's important to also keep in mind that it's not like God created the world and kind of disappeared. You know. 
Um, the Jewish God is the creator, but also the sustainer and the supervisor. So, like, um, we cannot exist unless he's constantly giving us kind of the flow of sustenance, so to speak. Yeah. So if God withdraws himself... If God withdraws, is, is then... He, in essence, not there? If that were to happen, we would, it's, we're dependent, so to speak, on him. So we would not exist. It's like, I think of it like an electric current, you know, like if... Go back to, yes, if he limits himself is um, is the fact that he has limited himself to suggest that he isn't there. So if In some capacity, well, in some capacity, in some capacity, God is limiting himself and he's not there in our decision-making ability. At, at, at whatever point we're on our own, God is not there. That's right. How that works, we don't know. But it does work, and we know that intuitively. We all know that intuitively. So we know it exists, uh, even though we don't understand how it exists. But we all know, like we say, like it's a common thing. If, if someone, someone makes a decision, someone uh, does something bad or something that is good, they should be rewarded for their good. Right? We, we have recognition for success, and we have punishment for failure or for, for bad things. We all know that. No one, were, no one here wants to argue that all criminals should just be allowed to do whatever they want. Right? Because we know intuitively that there's such something called free will. We know that. How that works? How does God limit himself? How does God retract himself? We have no idea how it works, but we do know that it exists. Okay, uh, let's go. Let's let's go back a step. Where were we before that? I don't know. We were at free will, but I guess. Well, we're, we're, we're a step before that. Actual history. Okay, let's go back to actual history. Oh, how did God? How did Abraham have Torah? That's where we were. Sorry. How did Abraham have Torah? So. Um, there's actually a fascinating midrash about this. The midrash, well, there's actually two midrashes that say that talk about this. Mehechon lamad Avram Avinu Torah. So the midrash asks, from whence did Abraham study Torah? Right. Torah was brought to the world by Moses on Mount Sinai, and it's now in kind of on the earth, so to speak. It's it's ours. Torah before that was in the heavens. It was, God used it to create the world. According to the Talmud, it existed 974 generations before the world was created. What that means, I don't know. But there was a reality of, of Torah before the world. You know, my, not Maimonides, Nachmanides in his introduction to the Torah talks about a Torah, the same letters, but different breaks in the letters. So for example, he says, Bereshit bar Elohim, he instead of he has three words as well, but instead of putting the the, the, the break between the two words after the tough of Bereshit before the bet, he puts it after the Bez, Resh, Aleph, that's the break. So he's what what he's what he's saying is that the Torah exists on multiple levels. Like there's the Torah that we got on our human level, but there's also the Torah on a on a on a, on a kind of a more spiritual level where it's he writes its all names of God. Whatever that means. I don't know. But the, 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 there is a reality of, of existence of, of Torah before it was given to us. Uh, so, the, so the Midrash asks, how did Abraham have Torah? So it says, this one of them, it says, from himself he learned. From himself he learned. And the other one says, that nasnu uh, something like something, his two kidneys became two wellsprings. And he studied from that. What this means uh, is that essentially we ha- all have Torah within ourselves. You know, we all have a soul. 
a soul has no business being within any one of us. Why? Because it's diametrically opposite. You have physicality and you have pure spirituality, so pure, and I mentioned this a hundred times, I'll mention it again, that the Talmud equates the purity of the soul to the purity of the angels and God himself. It has absolutely no business being within ourselves. Right? However, that's what we are. That's what God created us. Half soul, half angel, half body, half beast. Mixed together. But with, and, and we only kind of really relate with our body. Right? When we drink coffee, we feel good. When we shake lulav, we feel nothing. Why? Why don't we feel nothing? It's a mitzvah. It's food for the soul. How come we don't feel it? Because we don't have a sensory relationship with our soul. All we sense is our body. Hence, when our body gets tickled and gets taken care of, we feel it. When our soul gets taken care of, we don't feel it. Our soul's agenda, we don't, we don't have that kind of relationship with our soul. But we have a soul within ourselves. And our goal, perhaps, throughout our life is to try to come to terms, to try to have more of a real relationship with our soul. Try to make our soul as much of a player in our, in, in our life as our body. Now, if we were to do that, if we were to create this reality where our soul is as real to us as our body, when we would shake the lulav, we would feel it. You would feel it just like when you drink coffee, you have an ice cream, you feel, your body feels it. Right? And if we're able to really identify with the soul at the level that Moses and Abraham did, we would learn Torah from our soul because our soul has it within it. Our soul is spiritual. Our soul is from a, from a different world, from a spiritual world. Hence, Abraham was able to tap, from himself. What do you mean from himself? From within himself, deep within himself, he was able to tap into the power of a soul and able to exist in this spiritual world where Torah was already then. So Torah existed before Moses brought it to us, but it existed in a spiritual realm. It existed in a spiritual realm. Abraham, but that spiritual realm is within each one of us. Abram was able to tap into that um, uh, via the greatness of his character and his, and, and his, uh, and his beliefs and his dedication to the mission uh, that, uh, that he was entrusted to by God. That's how Abram said it. Now, now I want to tell you guys, once we're on the t- subject, we have a statement in the Talmud. A statement in the Talmud says, a child in utero, with a few statements in the Talmud, a child in utero knows the entire Torah. He's about to be born, an angel comes and slaps him on his mouth, and he forgets the whole Torah. Now, what does this mean? It typically means, oh, he's studying Torah. What does it mean, the soul studying Torah? According to the Maharal, the great commentator of um, a 15th or maybe 16th century commentator from Prague, from what's now Czechoslovakia, he writes, what it means that the soul studies the Torah, means, it means that a child in utero is just soul and no physicality. How do we know that? Because the Talmud elsewhere says that the physicality of the Yitzhah rise is, is slapped onto the, onto the soul at birth. So hence, we have this untethered soul in utero. So of course the child knows the Torah, because soul, by definition, is, a, is from spiritual realm, and that's where the Torah already exists bountifully, unrepressed. Baby's born, he gets all the physicality slapped upon him, he forgets the Torah, not because the Torah disappeared, just now it's muffled by the body. And your job throughout your life is to punch your holes and make that connection and connect more to your soul. And in fact, I have evidence that, that my Ra'al is right. How do I have evidence? Because if you look at the Talmud, <clears throat> the Talmud in Nida, listen to this, guys, this is awesome. The Talmud in Nida, Tractate Nida, 30b, 
that says, child in utero, knows the entire Torah, bat to be born, Adrachim slaps him and he forgets it. It brings a proof from a verse. Lefetach chatas rovates. Three words. At the entrance, sin crouches. At the entrance, kind of at the entrance to the world, at the entrance, sin crouches. Forgets the Torah. Right? Sin, sin now says plentiful. That's what it says. In Sanhedrin, a different tractate, all the way to the other end of the Talmud. Nida's the last chapter in the Talmud, uh, the last book in, in the Talmud. Sanhedrin somewhere in the middle. It says, it's having this debate, when does the child get a Yetzirah? When does the child get physicality? And it says, on one opinion, it says, at the time of uh, development, which is about 40 days into the conception, uh, post-conception. On the other opinion, it says, at the time of birth. And the Talmud concludes... It must be at the time of birth. Why? And it brings a verse. You know what verse it brings? Lefetach chatas rovets. The same exact verse that it brings to disprove to prove the child forgets the entire Torah. Now, one of the cardinal rule of all of Talmud is that every verse that teaches you a law can only be used once. So how do you have the same verse telling you, number one, the child forgets the entire Torah at birth, and number two, the child gets the physicality at birth. The answer is, because it's not telling you two separate things, it's telling you only one thing. child gets the physicality, and that causes his soul to forget the Torah, because it now has the physical inhibitors to the Torah. However, it's all there. We pray to God, Give us our portion in Torah. Now wait a minute. If we have the Torah, if it's our portion, why do we have to pray for it to be given to us? Right? And if we're praying to be given to us, obviously it's not our portion. So how do we pray, give us our portion in Torah? The answer is, it's our portion. It's within ourselves. It's within our soul. It's been there. We knew it perfectly when we were just a soul. Now, we need to access our Torah because we have the physical inhibitors. That's the answer. How did Abraham learn Torah? He had the Torah within him. And in fact, every human, every human post-Adam, a soul a based human, every soul-based human, has a Torah within themselves because they have a soul and the soul innately has Torah. So that's, but that's it's pretty, inaccessible to almost everyone. So that same sentence you said is accessible to those that follow Abraham? The Jewish well, people and those that don't follow Abraham? Yes, theoretically it's acceptable. I'm not going to go bring into Christianity, Islam, and whatever other faiths are, but what you just said leads me to believe if everybody's descended from Abraham, then every creature has the Torah. Well, not creature, every, every human. Every adult. Every, every human. I mean, every, every human. human has the Torah, no matter what that's right. Well, that the, well yes, yes. Every human who has a soul, which means every human now, um, the idea of a, of, a, of, a, of a soul, of a human devoid of a soul is something that's it's just only before Abraham, before Adam. What we would call maybe a Neanderthal, which is kind of like a lesser developed uh, a human that's without a soul, right? If you look at Adam, Adam is created twice in Genesis. One time is just a body. One time is a body which is infused with a soul. So yes, every human that has a soul theoretically has more than one way to tap into Torah. Why? Why? The simple, easiest way is now the Torah was given to us, and we can connect to it, we can read it, we can study it. We can, it's, it's more easily accessible to us post-Sinai. Uh, however, even beforehand, the great people like Abraham were able to tap into 
from their own, me'atzma, from themselves, or from their kishkes, so to speak, from their, from their innards, from their, it was within themselves, it was like, uh, it says, like, his two kidneys became two wellsprings, like, from within himself, he was able to study the Torah. How did he do it? Because he was able to tap into the power of his soul. Yeah? But theoretically, everyone could do that as well, yes. Everyone who has a, a soul could do that as well. Two thousand years of Torah, right? The world is a project, a project of what? Of bringing God to the world. It's through these three phases to it. There's just the idea of God. Right? Abraham is the one that we look at as being the primary force in in beginning that, but obviously uh, continuing that as well via his uh, descendants. There's another element of God's Torah. Right? That's the next one. The next next two thousand years is Torah. And lastly is Mashiach. Mashiach is where the idea of God becomes ubiquitous. Now, we, term, we typically use the idea of Mashiach as being an individual. The word Mashiach means anointed. And the ancient form of, of, of inaugurating kings were to pour oil on them, anoint them, make them king. Right? Uh, David is called Mashiach. Saul is called Mashiach. All the great kings right, is called, are called Mashiach. Now, the term Mashiach it means the individual, but it also means an idea. An idea of the world knowing about God. Everyone knowing about, about, about God. So, three levels of God's, God being revealed in the world. Now, the idea of God being revealed in the world, the idea of Torah, God's wisdom being revealed, and lastly, the Mashiach, where everyone knows about, uh, about that. And who is going to be instrumental in doing that? The Jewish people. How so? So the Talmud tells us, Mashiach will come in a world that is totally righteous or in a world, sorry, precisely, or in a generation that is totally wicked. Right? Messiah will come. The idea being, the world to learn about God or the world will learn about God because of the Jewish people. However, this could happen in more than one way. Either it's an entirely righteous nation Right? And the world looks at the Jewish people, we're the model of civilization. We teach the world about morals. Right? We are the ones who are kind of uh, domesticating the world. We're teaching the world about God. Right? We're the light to the nations. Right? We are an example that everyone looks at. We're the moral guardians of the world. Right? A nation that's totally righteous, that is the idea where we teach the world about God uh, via our piety, via our actions, via our behavior. The other side of the coin is also where the Jewish people are teaching the world about God. The whole world learns about God, but it does, and it's because of the Jewish people, but not because of our character, our positive character. Rather, we're a nation where we're, we're a generation where we're totally wicked. And when we're totally wicked, as the Torah tells us multiple times, but primarily at the end of Leviticus and the middle of Deuteronomy, when the Jewish people stray from the path of God, we stray from Torah, we get punished. And we get punished, and the punchline is always that the entire world says, Why is God so angry at the Jewish people? Why is he punishing them so bad? The world learns about God. Either via us and our behavior and our being a model and our being ambassadors to God of the world, or via us being a, uh, a, 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 a lightning rod or, or uh, being punished and being pummeled by the world, and why is God so angry at the Jewish nation? Either way, the world learns about God via us. It's our choice how we go about doing that, which is an example of God having a roadmap for humanity, for the world, and it's a reality that the destination can change. However, the path that we use to get there is within our within our own hands. Right? 
Either we could fulfill our destiny, we could be a light to the nation, we could teach the world about God, we could be the remarkable people, the nation that we're supposed to be. Everyone looks at us uh, for leadership. We're models for, for humanity. We teach the world about God. Or we could decide that we're no longer distinct. We're not going to be a special nation. We're going to be like everyone else. We're going to assimilate. We're going to lose our distinct flavor. We're going to forget the mission, the crucial mission that we were entrusted to do. We're going to get punished for it. That too will teach the world about God. Either way, the destination is the same. That's Mashiach. And it's our choice. Do we want it to be because of us or despite of us? As a result of our actions or a result of our punishments? That's the basic framework of these, of these three, uh, of three eras. Uh, and, and that's what the world's about. The, the world is a mission to teach the world, the blind world, about God. Back to Abraham. Abraham and his family developed the following. Right? The Torah talks about the nation the, or the, the, the souls that they created in Haran. Where are these people? All we have is Abraham and his family. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob. We have the sojourn to Egypt. We have the slavery in Egypt. We have them coming out of Egypt, the 40 years in the wilderness. We have the wonderful experiences at Mount Sinai. We have Moses dying on the doorstep of Israel. Joshua leading the nation into Israel. We have the battles of Israel. We have 393 years of skirmishes with the, with, with, with the local indigenous uh, population. The 31 city-states of Israel. Finally, we have King David who finally knocks out the last remaining stronghold of a, uh, of a of a foreign leadership in Israel. We have a bind, uh, tr- tr- uh, purchasing Jerusalem Mount, Temple Mount. We have Solomon building the temple. I just ran through like 700 years. <laughs> 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 but it starts off with Abraham, and Abraham has this wonderful following, and where are they? You know where they are? They're gone. And there's many different theories uh, uh, presented as to why they're gone. On one hand, we see uh, a theme that uh, repeats itself again and again uh, in, in Jewish history, where the great ideas stumble. It starts off, Abram is a great idea, and he rallies the troops, and he develops hundreds, uh, tens of thousands of adherents. And where they? they fizzle out. Right? And we have the first temple, and it's wonderful, and it gets destroyed. And we have the second temple, and it's wonderful, and it gets destroyed. And hopefully we're going to have a third temple as well, and that will be like, kind of like the third time's the charm. Right? We have the Jewish people in Israel. We have sovereignty. We have uh, great kings. We have the, the, the golden age of King David and King Solomon. United uh, nation. We have the split between the kingdom of, of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. We have uh, uh, this kind of cold war that existed for about a few hundred years. We have destruction. We have the Babylonians. We have the dispersion. We come back to Israel again. We build a temple again. We have unified, centralized leadership. It's wonderful. Until it's not wonderful. And we, we're dispersed again. And now, we, we're going back to Israel. And slowly but surely, the Jewish people are being aggregated from all across the world to Israel. Israel started off with being 600,000 Jews. Now there's 6 million Jews in Israel. 10x in uh, less than seven years. Pretty impressive. Hopefully this will be the, 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 the third time's the charm, so to speak. Abraham started a movement. And it was a very successful and dynamic movement. It fizzled out. And that's the thing we see again and again and again in Jewish history. One theory as to why uh, those people disappeared. I, I want to present another theory that uh, Abraham, he had adherents, 
He had an idea. He had an inspiration. But it was an untethered inspiration. People knew about God, but they didn't know what to do about it. They had God, but they didn't have Torah. And inspiration, where it's not translated into action, where it's not part of your daily life, eventually will disappear. And we see this again and again, where the Jewish people, if they have God, but they don't have Torah, their days are numbered. We have the statement uh, brought down in the Talmud where God says, Halavai osi tarasi If only, if only the Jewish people abandoned God, but kept the Torah. Why? Because the Torah will bring it back to God. Practice, observance of Judaism, that is what's going to keep the Jewish people as a nation for millennia. If it's just the idea of God, but it's not translated into action, it's not grounded in a way of life, it's going to disappear. So yes, Abraham was a great leader, and Abraham was a very dynamic speaker, and Abraham was so successful in teaching the, the multitudes about God, what did they do with it? How did they integrate that into their lives? How, did the, how will that perpetuate to, to their descendants? You know how? It didn't. They didn't have Torah. Uh, that's a theory. We don't have no idea where these people are. Uh, no, it, it may be yes, maybe no. It's, uh, it's like uh, later on in history we learn about the ten lost tribes. And now everyone uh, and their grandmother claims to be from the lost tribes, people from Africa and from Nepal and uh, from Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan and India, the Bnei Moshe, the Bnei Menashe, the Bnei this, the Bnei that. Everyone claims to be these ten lost tribes. Oh, and they have this practice, totally not Jewish, but they light Hanukkah candles, you know. Every night. <laughs> or, uh, or they have these traditions, this and that. We don't know. Uh, it's, we don't know and question how relevant it, it is. So yes, maybe yes, maybe no. Buddhism at a spiritual level is a very similar philosophy. Yeah, but Buddhism and Hinduism, those things are very distant from Judaism. Close religion to Judaism, as uncomfortable it is to say, is Islam. By far. Uh, but it's still very distant. But the close, uh, closest, uh, let me correct that, closest thing to Jewish theology is Islam. Um, there's no religion which is close to Judaism because it's, if, if you're even a little bit different, then you're different. It's not Judaism. But Jew, the, the Jewish view of God is almost identical to the uh, Islamic view of God. As opposed to the Christians, they have this whole you know, trilogy thing where they kind of give, give, um, uh, give divine... Uh, status to something which is not divine, so that's that's kind of bordering on idolatry. Is it quite idolatry or not? That's a debate right in the Talmud. But either way, the Jewish, the closest thing to Judaism with regards to theology, our belief of God is Islam. Yes, uh, spirituality is a very popular thing now throughout the world, and you know, uh, in near Asia. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 just the Near East, um, where they have like these gurus. It's very popular, very kind of like a sexy religion, so to speak. And ironically, the Jewish people were that way as well two thousand years ago. You know, the idea of uh, the Rome, the Roman historian Dio Cassius writes that that uh, that Rome had an excess of thirty thousand gods. You know, that was ancient paganism. Now thirty thousand. Probably, like all Roman historians, they are wont to uh, exaggerate. So probably it's an exaggeration, but either way, 
Um, that was the, the kind of the method. The, me- the method was that every nation that you swallowed up, you kind of adopted their gods. And there was the god for this, and the god for that, and the god for this, and these powers. Come along the Jewish people with this novel idea. Oh, there's only one god. And there's only one, and nothing, nothing, nothing else has power aside from uh, God himself, and everything exists only because God gives them the right and the power to exist. That was a very novel idea. It was, very, it was, it was, you know, it was very uh, exotic. It was, a, it was an exotic religion, kind of very similar to what we would say Buddhism is today, where it's like, oh, it's spirituality, this and that, it's a connection to nature, <laughs> you know? Uh, yes, but, uh, but uh, the central character in Judaism is God. We know that. And uh, the definition of God, I would say, is more similar uh, to what Islam has than anyone else. Is, is the God in Judaism, the ultimate God, is that the same God in Christianity and in Islam? Like I said, like I said, it's certainly not in Christianity because, first of all, in Christianity there is this idea of three. I don't want to get into. When we eliminate two thirds, when we eliminate two thirds in in Christianity, the Jewish definition of God is uh, a single entity, not composed of any parts, that uh, is not bound by time or space. That uh, created everything. Everything came. Uh, it's a first existence that brought everything else into existence. It doesn't have any parts or particles. It doesn't have any bodies. It doesn't have any. Uh, doesn't have any. Uh, it doesn't have any uh, emotions or feelings or anything like that. It doesn't have any of the restrictions or the the, the finite. Uh, borders of anything that we see in the physical world. That's the Jewish, basic Jewish definition of God. Maimonides gives five characteristics of God. I have a wonderful video on YouTube. I would just advise everyone to Google it. The nine characteristics of God di- uh, give, uh, collected from... That's my own video that I made. I would advise everyone. The nine characteristics of God. You can look at it. Google it. Um, uh, so yes, so that, that, I think that if you want to, uh, just how we define God, I would tell you to advise you to look at that video. Plus, I want to get, raise the views on YouTube. But yes, uh, Christianity, that they do not have that same, uh, no. Islam, I would say, is, is, I wouldn't say it's the same thing, but I would say it's, it's the closest you'll get. Maimonides writes, he says, listen, you're allowed to go in, if you were forced to go in a, in a, into, a, uh, into a mosque, you're allowed to go in a mosque, you're even allowed to pray in a mosque. Why? Because we're praying to the same God, even though the application, what to do about that is drastically different. You know, we have the Torah, and they have the Quran, right? Uh, but as opposed to walking into a church, it may be uh, equivalent to walking into a house of idolatry, and we're not allowed to walk into a house of idolatry. Moving right along, where were we? Uh, okay, so we have Abraham has a little bit of something other than pure Judaism within him. He has a son by the name of Ishmael. Like we said, Ishmael um, kind of does hold kind of somewhat of, of, of the mantle of, of Abrahamic um, monotheism, and we know that's the Arabs, but Abraham's descendants are not, are not purely the uh, Jewish people. Neither are Isaac's. Comes along Jacob. Jacob's called the Bechir Ha'avot, the perfect blend of the forefathers, and a- uh, Jacob was the one who was renamed Israel. Why? Because Jacob has this transition of being a man who is going to be on, on, on the individual level, Jacob, but also on the national level, he is kind of a microcosm of the Jewish people, hence his name, he's renamed 
Israel. He had 12 sons. These 12 sons are going to comprise 12 families, eventually 12 tribes that are going to be the, the, the uh, 12, um, uh, 12 uh, families and the Jewish people, the 12 tribes. Now, for thousands, of, you know, thousands, probably at least a thousand years afterwards, the Jewish people were still, still had the tribal structure. You know, Israel was divided up into 12 tribes. It was, it was uh, partitioned. Into, the, the tribes lived amongst each other, and they had some sort of a, a, a tribal uh, affiliation, so to speak. Nowadays, the Jewish people, we don't know who comes from which tribe, with the exception of the Kohen. We know Kohen comes the, the Kohen and the Levi come from the Levi tribes. Um, and now it's, not, now it's all mixed together. Uh, but the term Jew comes from the Judah. The, 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 the term uh, Yehudi from, from from tribe of Yehuda. Why? Because Judea and Samaria. You know the, Ju- the the Jewish name for the West Bank, which is the western part of the uh, the Jordan River, is called Judea and Samaria. Why? Because in the book of Joshua, when it talks about the partition of the land of Israel to the conquering nation of uh, that had left Egypt, uh, the parts that are What's now the West Bank were given to Ju- the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Shimon, hence Judea and Samaria. Ta-da! Yehuda v'Shomron. That's why it's, it's till this day. Israel, Jacob, is going to have uh, to be to become someone that he's not comfortable with. And remember, Nachmanides writes. We're told a lot about the forefathers because ma'aseh avot simalabanim. The actions of the forefathers is a guiding light to the children. Right? The challenges that Ab- that Jacob, the individual, will uh, will undergo mirror the challenges the Jewish nation in its entirety will also undergo. So we have our interactions with Lavan, right? very long uh, narratives about Jacob and his father-in-law Lavan or Laban and how they had to interact. And Jacob naturally was a very honest person. And he had to develop skills to be wily and cunning enough to engage and interact with his father-in-law. Jacob was not one who was uh, very comfortable in battle. But he had to meet his brother and he had to prepare for the reality of battle in the Jewish nation. We're going to have to develop laws. What did Jews know about laws and organized uh, uh, civil uh, civil uh, structures of, 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 of a country? We're going to have to learn how to do that. That's Jacob transitioning into Israel. What do we know about war? Right? Not that much, but we're going to have to learn about that. Right? Jacob learns about war, learns about how to deal with the reality of you being a Jew, you being different and distinct from the nations, and you constantly butting heads with your neighbors and the other philosophies that you're going to encounter uh, you know, with 3,000 years of, of Jewish history. Jacob is also faced with many challenges. You think Jacob, oh, he's got the perfect blend, right? All, all 12 of his kids are all on the straight and narrow. They're all part of the Jewish people. They're all righteous. What does he have? Trouble after trouble after trouble. He's trouble with his brother, trouble with his father-in-law, trouble with his wives, trouble again with his brother. And finally, he settles down in Israel after a tumultuous 25 years uh, trip, uh, trip east where he gets married and the whole, the whole deal and the whole infighting with his competitiveness between his wives and the brothers and this and that. He settles down. What happens? Joseph gets kidnapped. The whole story, Joseph gets sold to slavery. The entire Jewish nation, or what was then the Jewish family, goes to Egypt. And Egypt was a place where they stayed for about 200 some odd years. And 
where they eventually were encountered in slavery, exile. The Egyptian exile was the first major exile. And this is something we see multiple, multiple, multiple times. You have the Egyptian exile, the Jews get out of the Egyptian exile, they go to Israel, they build the temple, they have the Babylonian exile, the Babylonians come, right? first Sancheirev, and then Nebuchadnezzar. Sancheirev, uh, he destroyed the, um, the northern, is what's called the Israel kingdom. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the southern Israel kingdom, which called was kingdom of Judah, he disperses the Jews. They they right now they, they they all have to go have to go east to Babylon. They come back and they have to deal with the Persians. The Persians where their very existence was threatened. After the Persian exile, they have what's called the Greek or the Hellenized stretch, which is more of an internal turmoil, factionalism with the Jewish people, sectarianism with the Jewish people, Jews fighting Jews, Jews having to deal with influences that are contrary to our basic construct as a nation. That passes, you have the Romans, the Romans also have their ways of, of looking at things, more of a, uh, uh, a military challenges, they destroy the temple, we have the Great Revolt, we have the Bar Kokhba Revolt, we're trying to uh, maintain our status and our central authority and the, the, the basic framework of who we are as a nation. That passes. We have the Byzantines. We have to live under their control. We have the Ottomans. We have the uh, Alomahads. We have the Muslims. We have an ever-present uh, struggle of being in different nations and being under oppression. We go to Europe. What do we have there? Only a thousand years of inquisitions, of crusades, of pogroms, of blood libels, of holocaust, of whatnot. And now we're in America, and we're in Israel. And we're, you know, what is the idea, what's the meaning behind all this <coughs> travels, never being settled, uh, or not, never settled for that long as a nation? So there's various answers given. The answer that I like is that we are going to be an eternal nation. That's what we're told about, an eternal nation. Not only that, we're going to be the perfect nation, the model nation. When the Torah talks about what the Jewish nation looks at its best, you will be a nation of kings, your kingdom of priests and a holy nation, in Exodus, chapter, I don't know, the teens probably. That's what we are. How are we going to develop these skills of being the perfect model nation? We're going to go to Egypt. We're going to spend 100 years there. We're going to take from them their best quality. We're going to move on. And slowly we're going to aggregate all the skills of all the various nations into one kind of super nation. So yes, we're going to have to spend time in every country. We're going to live in every country in Europe. We're going to live in, 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 in Russia. We're going to live in uh, North Africa. We're going to be under the influences of the Romans, of the Persians, of the Babylonians, of the Byzantines, of the Ottomans, etc. And we're going to assemble all the great skills and kind of, uh, while maintaining our Jewish identity, also develop other skills and kind of take the best from all the nations and use that to uh, hone our, our, our collective uh, character into being the perfect nation. We're doing well, of course we are. But we're, right now we have the benefit of looking back and seeing. And, you know, you look today, I'm saying this is, I, this is obviously a crude example, but you look today, I, I just, I got the, the recent uh, Forbes 400 list. I don't know if you guys read this, but I got it in the mail. So I was reading it over the holiday. And I just look at the names, like it's like, ooh, so much, so much money, so much money. But you look at that, you look at the top, the first hundred names, more than half of them are Jewish, of wealthiest people in America. 
We're 2% of America. It's, 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 it's incredible. Jew, 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 Jew. I know that sounds like uh, it's like anti-Semitic or oh, the Jews control finance. But, but I know, and this is also a crude way of, 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 of measuring success, but we see that Jews are remarkably successful in every Every area that they that, that you know that that, that they try, and you know, the twenty two percent of all Nobel Prize winners, once again, is that the best metric for success? I don't know, but it is a metric for success. And twenty two percent, even though 02 percent of humanity is Jewish, right? less than one percent of humanity is Jewish, yet we are um, uh, we are uh, way beyond exponentially uh, successful in many 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 areas. So yes. We do seem to be that supernation, whether you like it or not, whether it has a tinge of what you might consider to be anti-Semitism or a certain variant form of anti-Semitism. It's still a remarkable fact that is undeniable that the Jewish people today, after all our collective history, we have something remarkable about us. I think the, in that country, in the U.S., yeah, I think the Asians have sort of overtaken Oh, no, they haven't. <laughs> oh, no, they haven't. Remember, we got a skewed population coming in. Oh, the, the, oh, Jewish people were always were always literate. Maimonides says, if you live in a city, a city that does not have a school that doesn't teach or everyone how to read, how to write, how to learn, should be burned down. Right? We were always literate. We always had almost hundred percent literacy when the rest of the world had one percent literacy. So yes, we were always dedicated. To, and remember, Jewish people. Only Jewish, I don't know where that phrase originated from, but the idea Jewish people remain Jewish because of our knowledge, because of our Torah. Once you take the Jewish people away from Torah, well, you might have Jewish people with an idea, but an idea that's not grounded in a, in a way of practice, in a belief, in a, in a, in a, in a doctrine, uh, then the Jewish people disappear. So, yes, if you take. The, Israel is a very secular society. I don't know, 1%, 80% are secular. You talk to Israelis, they never go to synagogue, they never, you know, they, they, they live Judaism. Yeah, Jews, listen, Jews Jews are Jews whether or not they choose to be Jewish or not. You know, a Jew to be baptized a hundred times, they might get wet, but they're still Jewish. <laughs> uh, and you see a lot of remarkable people um, that have had remarkable success in whatever area that they, you know, that were were baptized as to be non-Jew. They're still Jewish, you know, and they they cannot help uh, they kind of help themselves, so to speak. That 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 they're Jewish and they remain Jewish and they have the Jewish influence and they have the Jewish determinism, the Jewish uh, uh, quality of being driven to change the world. That's within them, whether they like it or not. So that's when you got to the idea of the souls, right back. Well, no, it's the idea of it's idea of the what we would call maybe the uh, Abraham's trait, yes. the trait of Abraham, which is. Being uh, uh, innovative, being driven, uh, being determined, going against the grain, thinking differently, thinking out of the box, thinking creatively, and and you know, and 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 uh, being determined to maintain your idea to its conclusion. Uh, if someone were to claim, I don't want to get sidetracked with this, but to claim that the Asians are more successful than the Jews is. Uh, the, the, the Asians uh, are, it's not country. true. It's not, it's not true. Because remember, the Asians uh, were dealing with billions and billions of people. Like, so much so, I like this. The, my favorite, perhaps my favorite bit of information of all time is that in the year 2000, they made a census in China. And every census, you have a margin of error, 2 or 3%. So there's the margin of error for the census in China was 48 million people. 
48 million people, which means that it's, the number is anywhere in the 96 million person range. Jewish people, what, are, we're t- 15 million people? 17. 17, 15, it's, it's not so clear. Uh, we don't have exact, exact data on this. The point is, is that we are so uh, overrepresented in every area. Now, you say, oh, every Indian that I met is just an incredible yeah. scientist, you, you know, but there's a billion of them that are living on a dollar a day in, in yeah, the, no, be, the best ones come to this country. That's what I'm talking about in this country, not over there. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, okay, this is, the, this is a debate we could argue about it. Yeah, because, um, you know, so we hear about the, you know, the concept, or I have, yeah. um, Judaism is clearly not a religion for the masses, right? It requires, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, the, not, not just the rules, but the learning, So, as you pointed out, there's just a small infinitesimal percentage of the world's population that is Judaism, that's Jewish. Is that by design, by God, do you think, that we occupy such a small portion of, of, of the world's population, or is it just a function of what Judaism requires other religions? Yes, yeah, so it is, it, is, it is by design. Okay. It is by design, but it's also... Um, it's kind of the best of both worlds. We, as Jews, we have this responsibility, but we also have this opportunity and this um, this uh, benefit of being Jews. You know, there's the positive of it because you know we are the leaders of of, of the world. We are. You know, uh, we're the ones who are taking responsibility for all of humanity. That's what it means. That's the mission statement of the Jewish people. A nation is going to teach to teach the world via. Uh, um, the Torah principles about, about about God and taking responsibility for all of humanity. If humanity fails, it's our fault. If humanity succeeds, or when humanity succeeds, it's going to be because of us. <coughs> now, <coughs> someone's born a non yeah, someone's born a non Jew. Well, they have the option to join, but they don't have the responsibility to join. So it's kind of it's kind of the thing where, yes, a lot is demanded upon us, uh, and that works. Uh, that's a benefit, but it's also a challenge. Uh, it's a responsibility. If someone else wants to join, they're welcome to do so. Why doesn't God want us Jews to go out and proselytize and get people? Because, because, because... They did, didn't they, in certain eras? Yeah, well, that's a debate. It's a debate. Um, Because you don't need to be Jewish to be good. That's, That's the point. We don't have this universal... We have a universal perspective, but not that you have to be Jewish to be good. You have to believe in God to be good. But you have very, very righteous. We we say I'm saying we have a, a different perspective than Muslims. Muslims say everyone has to be Muslim for the world. If you're not Muslim, is Dar al Kharb, Dar al Islam, which is a very fundamental uh, um, uh, Islamic belief. What it means, I don't know, but it's a fundamental Islamic belief. It's part of the basic framework of Islam that there is Dar al Kharb and Dar al Islam, which means the nation of sword and the nation of Islam. You ha- if you're either with us, uh, then great, or you're a nation of sword, whatever that means. We're not going to debate. Christianity is going to say, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, you don't believe in Jesus, eternal damnation. What do we say? Righteous members of the, of, the, of the nations have a portion of the world to come. You don't need to be Jewish to be good. You don't need to be Jewish to be righteous. You don't need to be Jewish to do what's required of you and to help the world. So that's why we don't have to, we don't, you don't have to be Jewish to be good. Right? You could be, be a wonderful non-Jew, and that's great. You could get a portion of the world to come, which means you can actually fulfill your mission and be a positive influence in the world. You have to believe in God. You have to be Jewish. You have to follow the seven Noahide laws, so you don't have to be Jewish. We are the ones who are accepting responsibility for everyone. Right? We are the ones who are saying, not only are we going to pull our weight, we're going to pull everyone else's weight. 
that responsibility was a responsibility that Abraham accepted, and Abraham said for him and for the entire the, 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 for his descendants. If someone else says, you know what, I want to be part of this crucial mission to save humanity, they're welcome to join. We accept converts. We don't force it upon them. They're welcome to join. What about Rabbi Akiva? Wasn't he a convert? Rabbi Akiva, that's a great example. Rabbi Akiva was a descendant of converts. Rabbi Akiva was instrumental in Judaism today only just because of Rabbi Akiva and his students. Right? They were a vital artery of transmission of the Torah. Jews without Torah equals non-Jews. We don't have to, uh, Judaism exists only because we have a Torah. We have, like we said, Abraham had an idea and he taught that idea but didn't have Torah so it doesn't perpetuate. You know, the Jewish people is the mobile homeland. Of the, uh, the Torah is the mobile homeland of the Jewish people. So yes, without Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Kiva was a, was a descendant of of of, uh, of, uh, of of converts. And he was so significant in, Jew, in Jewish life and philosophy that uh, according to the Talmud in Menachas 28b, it says that uh, Moses asks God, how come there are these crowns on top of the letters of the Torah? So God tells him, oh, uh, because there's going to be a man in many, many, many generations by the name of Akiva ben Yosef, Akiva son of Yosef, who will derive laws from each and every crown, piles and piles of laws from each and every crown. He says, oh, really? Why do you give the Torah for me? You should give the Torah through him. That's, that's, our, that's our view on, on, on Rabbi Akiva, and he was a descendant of, of, of converts. Yes, we're, we live in a meritocracy. Right? Our Torah, the Torah world is meritocracy. Uh, so much so that the Talmud says, the Mishnah, the Mishnah says in Horeus, if you have a Kohen Gadol, a, the high priest, which is the highest office in, the, in, in Jewish spiritual uh, world, is the high priest, but he's not a Torah scholar. And then you have a Mamzer, who is a Torah scholar. What's a Mamzer? Mamzer is someone who was born of a forbidden relationship. The word we use in English is a bastard. Who is the, they can't marry a Jew? Moms are can't marry a Jew, right? If 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 he's a product of a, of adultery or incest or something like that, it's a forbidden relationship. They are not allowed to intermarry the Jewish people. They are they are pariahs in the Jewish people. But he's a Torah scholar. He comes first. Why? Because we believe it's a, it's a meritocracy. So if, if someone is if someone is a if someone is a non a non Jew converts, they could be as great as as like Rabbi Kiva. And that's fine. The Rambam writes, Maimonides writes, it says, we listen to the truth from wherever it comes from. Maimonides brings from Aristotle and something like that. Well, Aristotle, Aristotle was someone who supported and fantasized and then did all the grossest sins possible, but if he has truth and he has wisdom, we accept that from wherever, wherever it comes from. Yes. And, and the point is, is that we take responsibility innately. Even if, like you mentioned, there's lots of Jews today, even though the numbers are changing drastically, especially in Israel, where the adoption rates of Judaism and, and observance are just shooting through the roof. Uh, where, as the foundation of the state was, was based upon a very secular perspective, uh, the first, the original Zionist, you know, uh, someone like Herzl. Herzl wasn't even into Israel. He wanted Uganda. All he wanted was a state for the Jews. They didn't even have the ring of going back to Israel and, re- and re- reclaiming Zion. Like, it, he wanted Uganda as a temporary place. No, that's not true. He was very happy with Uganda. In fact, he was threatened to quit Zionism. And it was a huge, huge, it was the second or third uh, Zionist Congress in, in, in Switzerland in 1905. He, he pushed the idea 
of, of listen, we're going to get a huge tract of land in, in your and it'll be great. Uh, because he had a very secular perspective of, of what this Jewish state would look like. Uh, and that's what the Jewish foundation of the Jewish state was. And the great leaders of, of, of Zionism were all Jews that had rejected Judaism, were grew, grown up in observant families. David Ben-Gurion was David Green, and his, his family was Torah scholars, and Shimon Peres, and Rabin, all of them were, 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 were came from observant backgrounds and had rejected that. Uh, and that's how the foundation of the state began. Uh, but progressively it has grown to be more Jewish and more traditional uh, as time has, has moved on. Whereas today you have 40 percent of I'm sorry, 30 percent, 35 percent of the country is basically observant. So yes, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation is slowly, progressively more in, uh, moving more and more towards a Jewish, like a real Jewish country. you know there's, there's going to be a movement, I believe within the next 50 years for sure, where you know Jewish law will actually be, in place, uh, at least Jewish um, civil law will be the law of the land. Even though, if, if Israel still exists. Oh, Israel's, yeah, Israel's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, think about it. If someone told you in 1970 that in 20 years one of these two countries won't be around, either Israel or the Soviet Union, uh, people would say, ah, Israel's gone. Uh, because, you know, Israel's been around for a long, long time. Yes, and, and it starts off, like we mentioned, with Abraham. It starts off stumbling, and it starts off, and you say, "Wait a minute, this guy Herzl, who was the furthest from being a traditional Jew, the most uh, assimilated Jew that there could possibly uh, man, he's going to be the one who's going to bring the Jews back to Israel or begin a movement that will eventually." Be- yes, it starts off, and you're like, uh, "How is this going to bring about really what the Torah talks the, about?" Do you think his uh, interest really came primarily from the Dreyfus case? That's what they say. That's what they say. Moving right along, we have another three minutes. Uh, let's, uh, okay, we can go a little longer, that's fine. Um, so Exodus, we have the Jewish people, we, we, we mentioned they're, they're, they're in exile, it's something, a pattern that repeats itself multiple times. We have Moses, once again, Moses is an example of a leader that's a very curious leader. This is another thing we see again and again. We talked about Rabbi Akiva. Uh, we talked about someone like Herzl, people that came from backgrounds that you wouldn't say are exactly on the straight and narrow. It's like, you know, like cookie-cutter uh, leadership profiles. Uh, Moses grows up as, you know, in Pharaoh's home. He, uh, he was abandoned as a kid because, you know, the, uh, he, he was someone who they were worried, you know, there was worried, there was, like we mentioned, infanticide. Uh, Pharaoh, we know the story in the beginning of Exodus. Pharaoh says, I want to kill all the Jewish males. He grows up in Pharaoh's home. Uh, and he has to make an identity choice of, um, am I going to be faithful to my roots as a Jew, or I'm going to be someone who's going to take kind of a mantle of leadership in the, oppressing the Jews. Kind of decision he had to make. You wouldn't look at him as being someone who would be a natural leader of the Jewish people. Uh, you look at David. David was seemingly the least remarkable of, of, of the sons of Jesse. You know? In fact, he was an afterthought. Like Samuel comes to Jesse's home and says, one of your kids is going to be the king. This is a, this one, not this one, not this one. Not all six of them. Like, it's not any of them. Is there any more sons? He says, yes, he's a redhead. He was hanging out with the, hanging out with the, uh, the, the shepherd. He's not remarkable. He's the youngest one. Everyone takes him and goes like this because he's a gingy. You know, they grab his head and go like this. He's the one. You know, Saul... First king of the Jewish people, 
Saul, he was the model of a king. He was the tallest man, head and shoulders above everyone, the greatest scholar, a great warrior, perfect what you would say, cookie-cutter king. And what happens to him? Two years, and it just ends in, in, in tragedy. And the model of king is, is, is David. And then who's the next king after David? Solomon. Who's his mother? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. This, this is going to be Jewish royalty? Where did that come from? We have the story of the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah and his son-in-law in, 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 uh, in, um, in Genesis, right? Judah has a son-in-law, has, has, has a daughter-in-law. She marries uh, his oldest son, marries the next son after he dies. She's determined to have a progeny from Judah. She dresses up like a prostitute. She uh, seduces him. Like, she takes his ring. She takes his ring and, 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 and his staff, so to speak, right? Uh, and this is going to be, and he, she has twins from him, this is going to be the father of, of, the, Jewish, of the Jewish people, uh, of, 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 of the Messiah. And then fast forward a couple hundred years, and you have the story of, of, of Ruth and Boaz. Mm-hmm. Once again, she slips, and Boaz the great leader, and she gets in there. It's a story. Like, this is the story of, 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 of the Jewish leaders? Yes, we have leaders, and we have leadership stories, and we have uh, redemption that comes in a, what we would call oblique fashion. Uh, it's again and again. It's Moses. It's Rabbi Akiva. It's uh, we could even say it's uh, it's Herzl. That this is going to be someone. Uh, it's the nation of this state of Israel, the state of Israel, which is the most secular state. Just you know, at its at its founding, yes, there's always going to be a a, a, a progression from uh, we 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 can calculate. It's not uh, it's not uh, going to be the way we expect. Kind of the way God's going to bring about uh, the redemption. Fascinated that Rabbi Akiva doesn't learn even to read until later in his forties. Forties, yeah, and forty. His wife is the one. That yes, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, we have. We, is there a question in the back? I saw a hand there raised. I saw. Can you raise your hand. Yes. Oh uh, yes. Uh, let's quickly uh, move along. We can get as as. Let's get all the way to the story of Joshua. We can do it real quickly. Uh, we have um, the book of the, the, the five books of the Torah and where Moses dies. So we have all the stories of the Torah. Um, uh, but we have also a way of life. The Jewish people, they have the Exodus. What happens with the Exodus? Ten plagues. Remarkable God's interacting uh, in a, with the Jewish people on a supernatural level. And then you have the splitting of the sea seven days later. And then 50 days later, you have the most momentous event at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to, to heavens. He disappears for 40 days and 40 nights. He comes back, somewhat of a tragedy. Some people are, 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 are worshiping the golden calf. He goes back. God wants to destroy the people. He goes back again. He prays for them. He goes back a third time, gets back the second set of, of tablets, returns back on Yom Kippur. God says, I've forgiven as, uh, as per your request. They build a tabernacle. They're in the wilderness for 40 days, uh, for 40 years, I'm sorry. They live a supernatural life. They have the food rains down from heaven. Their clothing grows with them. They drink water from a rock. They're surrounded by day with the cloud, which smooths out mountains and, and, and clears away stumbling blocks. At night, they have this pillar of fire. They're moving from place to place. They don't know when they're going. They're studying Torah. They have Moses, the prophet. They're living basically kind of this unreal existence. 
Moses dies on the footstep of, uh, of, of Israel. Joshua is the leader. Joshua, we, the Talmud says, the face of Moses was like the face of the sun, the face of Joshua was the face of the moon. Joshua kind of reflects Moses. He's like a, a leader that kind of, if you look at it, maybe it's the same size as Moses, but it does, it's not quite the same. It's not quite the same. They're going to go into Israel. They're going to have to live a natural life. Kind of the supernatural existence that they had during these 40 years isn't sustainable. And it's not really what God wants. God wants them to be in Israel, living like normal humans, having to have the struggle for a livelihood, having to have the interactions of, of, of a state, dealing with neighbors, dealing with battles, dealing with unfriendly uh, influences, they're going to have to take the lessons that they learned at, at Mount Sinai and uh, inject that into a world where they no longer have these miracles every day. They no longer have, no longer have this great prophet Moses that converses to God face to face. They still have prophets, they still have great leaders, they still have a lot of the influences of Moses, they still remember Moses, but it's not going to be the same. And the challenges are going to be remarkably different. And I guess we'll pick up from the... battles? Can you help me? Is the Jericho in there? Yeah, Jericho was the first battle. Battles? That's right. That's open. With Joshua, you have battle with Jericho. And That's right. Other? That's right. Um, can you... So we'll talk about... Oh, and next week we'll talk more about... Uh, I guess we got... Uh, so you'll live at listening online on, on the website, rabbitwalby.com. Um... So that's that. So we covered basically from Abraham to, I guess, to, to, to Joshua. So we didn't even get that far. Uh, but we kind of got a flavor of somewhat of the patterns that repeat themselves again and again. Uh, some of the insights of the grand picture of the 6,000 years. And also the idea of us trying to reach a certain conclusion with or without us as a result of us or despite of us. Uh, I guess next week we'll pick up from where we left off and try to make some further headway. Uh, now we have, uh, we still have 3,300 years to go, so we'd cover 500. Okay, uh, if anyone uh, is interested, I brought my lulav.